somebody who uh, has hit more home runs than he has strikeouts is uh, Ian Freeman. I got to tell you, a week ago, I didn't even know who Ian Freeman was. And I got to tell you, I have become a tremendous student, and I'm going to go ahead and say an admirer of uh, of Ian Freeman and the work that he is doing. He's a nationally syndicated radio talk show host. He's the uh, host of a show called Free Talk Live. He's a libertarian activist, and uh, he was the recipient of this year's Freedom of Speech Award at the Talkers Convention, and the publisher, Michael Harrison, called him the greatest champion of free speech that we have, and... Because he's under federal indictment and house arrest, he wasn't able to come to New York for the conference and receive the award. His speech was read by a co-host of his, Mark Edge. And I got to tell you, even though Ian Freeman wasn't there to deliver the remarks, I found that to be the best speech that I heard the whole night or the whole day. So in some respects, the best speech that I heard on Friday, including my own remarks, was from somebody that wasn't even there to give it. So uh, let us say hello to uh, the co-host of Free Talk Live, Ian Freeman. Ian, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Uh, Frank, a pleasure to be on one of the biggest radio stations in the whole country. What what an honor. Well, uh, the honor is all mine. Now, uh, before we get into your case, which I'm very interested in and still trying to wrap my head around, uh, give folks a little bit of an idea of your background. Now, you moved to New Hampshire to be part of something called the Free State Project. Some of our listeners may have heard about that because it's been talked about on the station before, going back, I think, about 23 years. But what is the Free State Project, and uh, why did you decide to upend your whole life and move to a new state just to be part of it? Well, I grew up in Florida, and I was a libertarian activist down there as a, as a younger man. Uh, and when I heard about the idea of the Free State Project, I thought, wow, this is a no-brainer. Libertarians all across the United States are pretty ineffective because there just aren't enough of us. And somebody came up with the idea of, hey, let's go to one geographic area with a small population and concentrate our efforts in that one place and I said, yeah, i got to be a part of this. So I already had my radio show, Free Talk Live, at the time. Uh, and and we migrated up here to New Hampshire in 2006. And I wanted to bring my show up here to you know be uh, a broadcaster and kind of explain the stories of what was happening here in New Hampshire. All the cool like civil disobedience, activism, and the political success stories that we were having. And, and use my show to kind of be an outreach tool for that project. How, from your perspective, how has the Free State Project worked out? I heard from a lot of people that were a part of this that they were very optimistic about the things that the Free State Project was going to be able to do. They were going to be able to go into a community and just have low taxes and low spending and all sorts of property rights and gun rights and free speech and all more freedom than you could shake a stick at. Has it worked out that way? Well, number one, New Hampshire was chosen as the destination by the uh, the first 5,000 signers to the Free State Project. There was this pledge of they were trying to reach 20,000 people who would agree to go to this, this place, and they didn't know what it was going to be right up front. Uh, there were 10 candidate states, and the reason why New Hampshire won overwhelmingly compared to the other options was because it already had a lot of the things that you mentioned. It already has a very low tax burden. Uh, it already has tremendous gun freedoms. It's one of the most free places places as far as uh, self-defense in the whole country. So it already has an incredibly accessible political system 
with 400 state representatives, roughly one state rep for every 3,000 or so uh, population. So there's there were 101 reasons, actually, that the activists chose New Hampshire. And that's uh, there was this list put together by the people that already lived here. And they were just so persuasive. We even made a documentary out of it called 101reasonsfilm.com. You can go there and you can watch it. It's really, really awesome. So we started from a really good uh, mm. place. And then we said, all right, we're going to bring 20,000 freedom-loving people, freedom-loving activists here. And we're going to shore up the freedom. We're going to make New Hampshire as free as it can possibly be. And I think it's been a tremendous success. So has New Hampshire, which was already the live free or die state when the Free State Project began migrating these 20,000 people up there, has it genuinely, in your view, become more free? I know there's been quite a few state legislators associated with this Free State Project elected, uh, but has it actually worked out to increased freedom for the rank-and-file New Hampshireite. Yeah, I think so. Um, and as you pointed out, uh, that there are right now a few dozen, some say as high as 40 free staters, quote-unquote. These are people largely who migrated here as part of the Free State Project from all around, not just the United States, but some around the planet, uh, who have become state legislators here. Now, again, that's only about a, a tenth of the, the total 400 uh, state reps that we have, but that's enough to break any tie, right? So any sort of issue that's close, if you don't have the free staters on your side, it's not going to pass. Mm. And so we, uh, we of course, in 2017 had marijuana decriminalization. Sadly, New Hampshire is uh, trailing behind most of the New England states as far as cannabis goes. But we did get decrim, which is a good thing. And that same year, we also got uh, concealed carry without a permit, or as they call it, constitutional carry. We already had open carry, but now you don't even have to ask permission to conceal carry a gun in New Hampshire. So we got guns and drugs in the same year. Well, congratulations. Uh, it's a winning combination, right? Ian Freeman, uh, the uh, co-host of uh, Free Talk Live, uh, is my guest. I- explain to folks your show. You mentioned chronicling some instances of civil disobedience uh, from the time your show started in 2006 to the present day. It's not your garden variety talk show where you pick an issue in the news, give your opinion, and take calls. It's a, it's a, lot, more, um, it's a lot more activist than that, isn't it? It is that. I mean, we do talk about the news and we do take calls. It's an open phone show. We actually started in 2002 and then we migrated to New Hampshire in, in 2006. So we were in Florida for the first four years. Uh, but but Michael Harrison, I think, described it accurately as a kind of a reality show because we don't just talk about what we believe. We actually live what we believe. And, and that's part of being an activist is you go out there and you put your you know, your butt on the line, so to speak. And that has resulted in uh, my being arrested multiple times. I've lost count, probably at least eight to 10 or something uh, in that range for all victimless crimes. I produced a little documentary in 2012 called Derek J's Victimless Crime Spree, where one of our co-hosts is arrested five times in a year for completely victimless crimes. And it's a pretty entertaining little film, which you can watch Well, give us an example of one or two victimless crimes that he was arrested for. Uh, Smoking pot in the park. That was before decriminalization had happened. That would have been when it was a misdemeanor to possess any amount of cannabis. Uh, He tried to walk into a courthouse with a video camera, and they arrested him for that. At one point, they they actually, one of the cops knocked him off of his bicycle uh, and arrested him in a completely unnecessarily violent manner. It's it's a ridiculous uh, movie, and we caught all of it on video. And how can people see that if they want to see it? Just go to victimlesscrimespree.com or search for it on uh, your favorite video site like YouTube. 
Now, I learned in uh, a podcast interview that I heard you do that the when the part of the model for when you and your co-hosts started launching Free Talk Live is that everybody would be paid almost nothing, including you guys. Now, yeah, uh, that's right. How did you? Uh, let's put aside the last few years because I know you're you've been doing some interesting things with cryptocurrency, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Sure, but uh, how did you make a living? While doing this uh, this radio show regularly, what was your paying job? How did you pay your rent or your bills? Well, I I had been working at uh, was then a company called Clear Channel at the time down in Sarasota, Florida, where I grew up uh, for years prior to the the show Free Talk Live being created. So. I don't know if I was full-time, but I was kind of like the regular fill-in guy, and I did a lot of board operation and some on-air work as well and promotions. And, you know, wherever it is was, I could do various different things for the station. I started when I was an intern at 17, and we started Free Talk Live when I was 22. So I already was working in radio, and that's how we got Free Talk Live started was I went to the general manager, and, you know, we were doing this sort of all-satellite station. You guys have full local talk there on WABC Absolutely. all Very day and all night, it. which Very is amazing. I was looking at your schedule the other day, and uh, in a lot of places in the country, they don't get that. They get everything in off a of satellite. So we came into the general manager and said, hey, we're, we're willing to do a local show. We're willing to do it for nothing. Will you put us on the air? Of course, like I said, we were already working there, so they said yes. So when you moved to New Hampshire, though, you're no longer working for Clear Channel. How were you making money? How were you paying your bills? Um, I had significant savings, you know, from uh, being just good at that over time. I'm good gotcha. with uh, good with managing money, and uh, we were able to live very very frugally and got that done. At that time, we were trying to sell Free Talk Live, sell the advertisements, uh, the slots that we had on the show. It's, of course, very, very difficult in the initial years, but every now and then we got a little bit here and there. Talking with uh, Ian Freeman, uh, he is a radio talk show host, a libertarian activist, and uh, somebody who is currently under federal indictment. Now, this indictment, this case, involves you and five of your colleagues that folks are referring to as the Crypto Six. That's right. Uh, How did your involvement with cryptocurrency begin? And when you you explain that, just understand that I think a lot of our listeners are are still, even though they hear the terms Bitcoin and blockchain a great deal, they're still trying to wrap their heads around not only what cryptocurrency is, but the potential use cases for things like Bitcoin. But that being said, how did your involvement with crypto begin? That's a great question. It goes back to probably around 2011 or 2012. We had a listener call in. I think he was an Australian uh, listener who was telling us about this crazy program called Bitcoin and uh, we didn't really, of course, catch on at that time, but he talked about it and he kind of gave some of the basics on it, I guess. And one of our advertisers at the time, a guy named Roger Veer, was listening to the show and he heard this concept for Bitcoin, this idea of a decentralized form of currency uh, that doesn't involve governments and it doesn't involve banks. It cuts those middlemen out of the picture as far as humans being able to transact value between one another and he saw the value in that and he went out uh, and spent i don't know how much of his money he was already a successful businessman that's why he was advertising with us he had a memory uh company like selling computer ram wholesale and so that's what he was advertising with us at the time but he went out and he just dug in for a whole week of his life without sleeping and just did as much research as he could about bitcoin and he saw the vision for how it could empower the individual 
and again take that power away from from world governments and banks and he just got hooked on it and he bought a whole bunch of it when it was probably way less than a dollar a piece and shortly thereafter he came to us and said all right guys well i'm buying all these ads from you but i'd like to pay you in bitcoin uh, for these ads that I've been buying. And unfortunately, we didn't agree to take 100% of the uh, ad dollars in Bitcoin at that time. It would have been a smart move to do that, but I think I agreed to like 10 or 15%. But that said, we held on to uh, what we did receive, and it's obviously done very, very well with, I think, today. Even though it's quote-unquote down, it's at over $20,000 uh, Bitcoin today. So, so around that time that you were getting ten paid for your ads in at least a portion in Bitcoin, what was Bitcoin? going for about I mean, at that time whatever it was was you know in the less than a hundred dollar range initially so uh, less than a hundred dollars yeah and now it's over twenty thousand dollars a bitcoin yeah that's right so you made i mean uh, again at least on paper you made a lot of money with this decision to accept uh, some ads in bitcoin uh, well we did and ultimately uh, we formed the shire free church and donated it all to the church so i don't technically uh, have any of it anymore and what what is the Shire Free Church? Uh, the Shire Free Church is a free church, and there's a whole free church movement uh, out there. But ultimately, the uh, the Shire Free Church is an interfaith church, and it is a peace church. So its mission is to foster peace. And one of the ways that we were doing that was to introduce people to the idea of cryptocurrency, with the thought being that people who get into Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency, for every dollar they put into cryptocurrency— that's a dollar that the government can't touch anymore. That's value that is outside of that system. And that is money that they therefore cannot do things like go to war with and bomb innocent people all around the world. So to me, every single person we can bring over to alternatives like Bitcoin or even gold and silver for that matter, uh, getting value out of the government money, the fiat money, if you will, and putting it into these alternatives was, uh, was pretty important for a mission. When did your legal problems, and I'm not talking about arrests for civil disobedience or victimless crimes and things like that, mm -hmm. but your legal problems related to the current case, when did your legal problems begin? Well, the short answer is they raided our studio in March of 2021 uh, in a 6 a.m. raid where they smashed in the windows of my home studio. And as you mentioned, there were five other uh, friends and co-hosts of mine who were also uh, had their homes raided simultaneously at that time. But, you know, in a cold New Hampshire 6 a.m. morning, it was 10 degrees outside. They smashed in multiple windows, flew a drone uh, inside my house. They rolled up a couple uh, armored personnel carriers called Bearcats. One of them had a battering ram on the front that bashed in my neighbor's front door, uh, who was also one of my co-hosts, a man named Nobody. He had changed his name legally in the year 2020 to run for governor, which is a whole other story. But uh, that's how they did it. And there were dozens of, of armed men and women from various different federal agencies, uh, FBI, ATF, Postal Service, IRS, uh, that came in and, uh, you know, took me out. And So armed agents from four different government agencies, at least, at you least. just named four, yeah. um, at, you know, bashing in your your windows uh, at six o'clock in the morning. That's right. Had they just called you and said, hey, you know, you're going to be arrested today. Please come in and surrender yourself. Would you have done that? Was there a big need to do this raid at six o'clock in the morning? No, of course not. And they could have just knocked on the door at any old time of the day. They certainly didn't need to smash in the door or any of that stuff, bring up the bear cap. But you know, boys and their toys. I mean, there's probably going to be no liability for them for doing all of that uh, destruction. 
uh, except for whatever negativity might be revealed about this in in the media, which, of course, the media has largely ignored this case. So I appreciate your time tonight. Well, yeah, and, and that's why I want people to have a thorough understanding, one, that the FBI does this and other federal agencies do this. And, right. Uh, at least right-leaning media did explore this and uh, when, as it, when uh, they took down and raided Roger Stone's home as if he was El Chapo, mm. in spite of the fact that he'd never been arrested before. But uh, I don't think people realize how common it is mm-hmm. for these federal law enforcement agents to come in uh, in this heavy-handed manner, and I'm yep. putting it as politely as I possibly can, and uh, the, it's done purely for intimidation when, in many instances, it's really not necessary. Uh, and I've seen a lot of nonviolent criminals arrested in exactly such a manner. So yeah, let's no talk crime. about— No victim, no crime. Let's talk about what um, you're actually charged with. Prosecutors claim that you ran an unlicensed virtual currency exchange business that handled millions of dollars in transactions over several years in violation of federal law. According to the government, Freeman, you are Freeman and the other members of the Crypto Six, Mm -hmm. you guys advertised sales of virtual currency online and operated virtual currency exchange kiosks in Keene, New Hampshire and elsewhere. Is that true? Well, I mean, part of our outreach project was to get cryptocurrency into the hands of individuals. It's just the government goons believe that you have to ask their permission before you do anything in life. And we didn't believe that we had to. We had an attorney who had researched their money transmitters, they call them uh, statutes, at the federal and the state level. And he said, nah, you don't have to do this stuff. Uh, and that was, uh, and that gets into some technicalities of what mm-hmm. a money transmitter is and a, what is a money services business. These are all, of course, legal terminology with very specific definitions. And uh, we say we're not those things, and they're going to try to say that we are. And that's so going to be up to a jury, and that's just one aspect of the case. The government also claims that you allowed an undercover agent to exchange around $20,000 in cash for Bitcoin after the agent told you that he was dealing drugs. Is that true? Uh, That's a lie. That agent came to our cryptocurrency meetups here in Keene, uh, which we have regularly because we've got a great cryptocurrency community up here in New Hampshire. And he came out, he had purchased some Bitcoin, and this is how they always do this, Frank. They, they're, they've done multiple takedowns of Bitcoin sellers all across the country. I was already familiar with multiple other cases where what they do is they send in an agent, he makes some regular buys, no problem, everything's fine, and then the agent will say something like that he's a Russian heroin dealer, or in this case he was from Belarus. But uh, he's like, I, he said, like, I sell heroin, and then they'll, they'll ask you to buy Bitcoin again. And at that point, I told him, no, I can't sell to you now that you told me what you do is illegal. That's, that's textbook money laundering right there to agree to something like that. And so, of course, my red flag had had gone gone up as soon as he said what he did. I'm like, oh boy, this guy's you know probably a federal agent. But whether he was or he wasn't, I wasn't going to sell him any Bitcoin. Uh, so what he ended up doing was he went to the Bitcoin vending machine in town and used that, and they're claiming that that was money laundering. It's I ridiculous. Uh, so uh, the government also claims that you and the other members of the Crypto Six used personal bank accounts and accounts in the names of, quote, purported religious entities to conceal the nature of your business and then directed customers to falsely report that they were donating to churches or buying rare coins, not purchasing cryptocurrency is that true 
Well, those are very interesting allegations, and I guess they're going to have to try to prove those uh, in uh, in front of a jury. Uh, there's plenty of people who would tell you that Bitcoin is rare. There are only going to be 21 million Bitcoins available. And, you know, if you look at the number of millionaires in the world, I've heard estimates that there's something like 40 million millionaires. I don't know if it's true, but let's just accept that as true. If there's 40 million millionaires, then if they all want a whole Bitcoin, they can't all have a whole Bitcoin. So, I mean, by definition, we're talking about uh, rare coins. So if they're going to try to claim that that was a lie, then that's going to be a very interesting case. Basically, what they're saying is if you say something to a bank that they don't think is true or not the whole truth or whatever, that you should spend 30 years in prison for that, even if it wasn't intended to try to you know, bilk the bank. Generally, when you look at a wire fraud charge, it's someone trying to scam somebody out of some money. Uh, in our cases, in every single case, and there's like more than a dozen charges of so-called wire fraud, there's not a single allegation of anyone losing money or any of us trying to actually scam somebody or a bank or whatever out of money. These were all just our accounts that we were using for what we believed to be completely legal purposes. So you're charged with wire fraud. You're charged with money laundering. You're charged with operating an unlicensed money transmitting business. And you're charged with conducting a, a continuing financial crimes enterprise. I'll be honest. I've read the indictment. It's difficult for me to wrap my head around uh, beyond the, the federal agent aspect of it where, uh, you know, I guess I could see how that's money laundering if if their version of events is true. But it's difficult for me to understand exactly what the crimes are that you've committed. But if you're convicted, what kind of time are you facing here on these charges? Well, I don't know what all the sentencing guidelines are. There's a very complex sentencing book that's like, you know, a thousand pages or whatever. And uh, so, you know, it all depends on what sort of other things you've been convicted of in the past and what kind of money was involved and what all you get convicted. But ultimately, the maximum could be 420 years in prison. Now, again, I have a very light criminal record with no actual violent crimes with just some minor you know, civil disobedience arrest. So probably not going to be that. But the one continuing uh, financial crimes enterprise charge does have a minimum of 10 years on just mm. that one charge. Why do you think it sounds like you clearly don't think you broke the law? It sounds like you had an attorney that advised you as to exactly how you were going about this. Why do you think you were targeted uh, for prosecution and for arrest by the federal government? They have been, and this is the longer version because I told you, you know, we got raided last year, but they, uh, they've been investigating the free staters here in New Hampshire, specifically those of us in the Keene area since as far back as 2005. Uh, the lead agent in this particular case is a man named Phil Christiana, and he works out of the Boston uh, FBI regional office. And he had uh, been knocking on people's doors within the Free State Project community here in Keene back, as, again, as far back as 2005 in uh, 2012, I think it was, he had my co-host uh, arrested back then for selling cannabis here in Keene. So we had the local cops arrest him, and then he tried to flip him into an informant and get him to wear a wire into the Keene Activist Center. My friend uh, refused to do that, and so they prosecuted him fully. Uh, fa- he faced up to 100 years in prison for selling cannabis, ultimately uh, going to trial and being found guilty. Luckily, he was only sentenced to one year 
on that uh, particular count. But he went and he served that year rather than than wear a wire on us to try to, I don't know, reveal whatever the feds think was going on in the Keen Activist Center. So this very same agent it was the uh, the main agent behind the, the Crypto 6 case as well. So this guy's been absolutely obsessed uh, with the Free State Project and trying to find something uh, criminal that people here have been doing for just about almost two decades now. So your current legal status is uh, you're out on uh, on bail and under house arrest, right? Yeah, I'm on uh, what's called curfew. Initially, I was on a very restrictive house arrest where I had to ask for permission for any time I wanted to go grocery shopping or something like that and get – I've got an ankle monitor on, for instance. It'll alert my probation officer if I leave the property. Uh, but now I've got a curfew, which means that I can kind of just go as I please as long as I'm out after 9 a.m. and back before 11 o'clock. Uh, there's also various other restrictions on me. I can't use cryptocurrency in any way, shape, or form, which really sucks. Uh, there's so many different things I, I can't do basically under these uh, these restrictions. I've got monitoring software on my computer and my uh, my cell phone, so it's crazy. When is the trial uh, slated to take place? And I think I know the answer to this question, but is there any chance at all that you could see taking a plea in this case? Um, the trial is scheduled for November. They haven't offered any decent plea to me. They've already gotten three of the six to take a plea. Uh, at this point, sadly, they're pleading to, I think it was one or two of the three of the six, three of the six have uh, pled to one count of wire fraud. And of course, that's really sad because, you know, they didn't commit fraud. They didn't defraud anyone. There's not even an allegation of any financial uh, loss in these cases. But the reason they took these plea deals was because the feds are doing what they do to everybody, which is they load you up with a bunch of really scary charges. And then they come back. They come back at you and say, well, we're going to bring more charges against you unless you take this plea deal and you agree, you know, that you did this thing that they didn't actually do, but they uh, they said they did, and for the purpose of just trying to get out from under all the weight and all the pressure. And I don't blame anyone uh, for you know for cracking under that pressure. It is a scary thing that these when these psychopaths uh, come after you. So that's what happened to three of the the six. One of them, uh, thankfully, she had her charges dropped uh, completely in her case. Oh. So there's only two of us remaining uh, that uh, are going to trial. And um, I, whenever I've talked to people involved in the very high-profile cases, which yours is, their lawyers are so often trying to get them to refrain from commenting publicly, lest they say anything that might jeopardize their case. You're speaking out like crazy, not only on the radio on your own show every day, but you're mm-hmm. doing interviews with Michael Harrison, you're doing interviews with me. Why are you so um, eager to speak out about this case? Well, first of all, we didn't do anything wrong. Uh, we didn't defraud anybody. And the allegations against us are absolutely outrageous. It's pretty clear that we're being punished for our speech. We've always been critical of the, the federal government, uh, specifically of the FBI and the various different corruption when it comes to police all across the country. Uh, so, you know, we, we're, we've got big mouths. We certainly aren't afraid to uh, to use them and Again, we we don't believe we actually committed any any crimes here, so we're gonna we're gonna leave it up to a jury to make those those decisions. And um, lastly, in your remarks in your speech, which unfortunately you were not able to give in person at the talkers convention, you talked about 
how easy it is for people and talk show hosts specifically, but people in general to stand up for free speech. That's popular, Mm -hmm. but it's a lot more. It's if, if people aren't speaking out for folks like Julian Assange and others that are uh, seeing their work for free speech, essentially criminalized, they're really not for free speech. I'm wondering if you can speak to the Assange case specifically and uh, the issue of uh, speaking out, for unpopular free speech in general? Sure. Well, of course, uh, unpopular speech is what needs to be protected. That's why the First Amendment exists. You don't need uh, protections for a speech that's popular. And Julian Assange is probably the most important character in all of the, the world as far as press freedoms are concerned. The man has been literally imprisoned for roughly the last 10 years uh, even though most of those years he was in a, an embassy, he wasn't there by choice. He was there because he was trying to avoid uh, a worse situation, which he's now in. I believe he's in the Belmarsh uh, high security prison in the UK, awaiting potential extradition to the United States, a country that he's never even set foot in, mind you, uh, that wants to extradite him for revealing the truth. Revealing the truth about what the U.S. military, among other things, and politicians, Hillary Clinton, etc., uh, were up to. And the, the government doesn't like the truth. So they're coming at him with, I think, 170 years behind bars the rest of his life if, uh, if he's extradited. Ian, I have to end it there. I hope sure. we can talk again. Please Anytime. keep us posted on your on your case. And if people want to listen to uh, Free Talk Live, they can go to uh, that. You can go to your website, freetalklive.com. Thanks, Frank. Uh, thanks very much. Ian. Anytime. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call one eight hundred eight four eight WABC. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Olivia is calling from Arizona. Hello, Olivia. Hey, so I called about Ian Freeman, Free Talk Live, and played you real quick about inflation. Uh, it doesn't feel like 8.2% to me. It feels a lot higher than that. But I'm holding my GameStop stock, so maybe that'll do something someday. Um, I'm so glad you had Ian Freeman on because uh, I've listened to Free Talk Live for over 10 years now, and it's such a great show. They're, they're so pro-freedom, and they live it with their activism, and I've always got different subjects uh, every night, philosophy, spirituality, science, all kinds of cool stuff. And they, anyone can call in any time and talk about literally anything. And some people, like me, call in almost every night. Um, but about plea bargains, you know, it, it's, it's so pitiful to me that it, it's supposed to be that you prosecute people for the protection of society. But they load on these charges that uh, if you took the plea, they're not important They'll, they'll get rid of these other charges, so they're not important unless you don't take the plea. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly they've got all these. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that you have a right to a trial by jury, right? But they found a loophole to get rid of that and say, well, we'll just make it so so um, detrimental to you to take your right that you'll just waive it automatically. It's like they've made a mockery of of your right to a trial by jury. Um well, you're exactly right. I mean, um, what a lot of what we see go on here in uh, state and federal cases 
is what they call a, a trial tax. They basically go to someone uh, who's charged with a crime and say, look, we'll give you a, a plea deal where you do, we'll, you'll get sentenced to 10 months in prison. You'll be out and in a halfway house in six and a half. Otherwise, if you don't, you're going to have to go and hire an attorney, probably spend four or $500,000. And if you get convicted at trial a- after spending a whole lot of time and seeing your reputation ruined, making you probably unemployable, if you get convicted at trial after you roll the dice and lose, you're going to look at five or six years in prison. A lot of people don't want to uh, play that kind of trial roulette, and that's how the government avoids uh, going to trial. You know, you meet a lot of criminal defense attorneys these days. Very few of them actually try cases because everything becomes a, a negotiation over a plea and a sentence. It's really incredibly sad, Olivia. Right, and and the judge who works for the government gets to decide which evidence gets admitted into your trial. So it's, it's already stacked against you. And like Ian said, he can't use crypto. I think they might have even seized it. So what? how is he going to pay his lawyer? A lot of times they seize your assets before you even go to trial. So you, how are you supposed to pay uh, all these exorbitant uh, financial barriers that they put up? You can't even uh, – you don't get to decide what evidence you get. To, uh, to use in court. I remember there was a cop case where they wouldn't allow them to use the body cam footage that clearly showed the police execute someone. And of course, he got let off. So mm. it's just a really depressing state it re- of affairs. It really is, uh, Olivia. Thanks for, thanks for calling. And, you know, it's funny, you mentioned uh, freezing of assets. Gangsters are difficult people to find sympathetic, right? Because they do a lot of horrible things and they um, aren't exactly model citizens to put it mildly so it's tough to sympathize with them right so that's usually the first people the government pick on is the people that it's difficult to sympathize with so what they did with the rico statute is they have actually made it that they can freeze your assets before you're convicted the rationale being they don't want you benefiting from your criminal enterprise to hire a high-priced defense attorney and get off on the charges that you're charged with. Now, on one level, the rationale makes sense. But if you go by what's in the Bill of Rights, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. They shouldn't be able to freeze your assets before you're convicted of something. I mean, it's crazy. I really, uh, I, the, the issue where I'm most sympathetic with libertarianism is, uh, and I've had a lot of conversations with Judge Andrew Napolitano about this, is issues related to the criminal justice system. And uh, uh, my heart breaks for what Ian Freeman and the Crypto Six are uh, are going through. And I don't know that I could uh, handle a prosecution of me with the same kind of grace that uh, that he is. So I give him a lot of credit. I give him a lot of credit. And, you know, the easy thing is always to go to trial. Excuse me, is to not go to trial, take a plea. And a fellow that I have a lot of admiration for, and again, I don't want to make this a mafia show. That's why we have the racket report. But a fellow that I have a lot of admiration for is this fellow named uh, Tommy Gioli. The government accused him of being a crime boss. He could have easily taken a plea. Instead, he went to trial, went to trial and kept a blog during that trial and gave his point of view to the world came on the radio with people like me and i said this guy has testicular fortitude i mean this guy has onions the size of grapefruits because the government doesn't like when you try to get your version of events out to the public which is why i give ian freeman so much credit they like when you cower away 
and go to and don't go to trial and just take a plea and go away happily off to prison. But what Tommy Gioli did is he went to he went to trial, was charged with six murders, acquitted of every single one, charged with 20 other crimes, uh, acquitted of almost every single one, barely convicted on one charge. On one charge. So essentially, the government was rewarded for overcharging because the, and again, I don't want to relitigate the whole trial. It's 10 years old, but this is a textbook example of what the government does. The judge questioned in the presence of, of me and the other members of the press, every member of that Gioli jury, and he said, do you agree with the verdict? Do you agree with the verdict? And they went, yes, 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 yes. And there were two jurors that had a very difficult time saying yes. They paused. A long time before saying yes. But what happened here is the government kept these jurors there for eight weeks. And the jury was very clear. Not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. But there's so much pressure to convict him on something. So I guarantee a lot of them thought, All right, I mean, we know we think he's a bad guy. You have all this evidence of him palling around with other bad guys even though we don't really think he's guilty, let's convict him of the lowest possible charge. And then, bang, the judge sentences you as if you've, you've been convicted, convicted of everything. So uh, it is very depressing. And uh, I don't know what the solution is because, um, well, there has been some progress made um, recently. By and large, it's only gotten worse. It does, and irrespective of who's in office, it doesn't matter who's in office, it's just gotten worse.